0: I don't know if you still do. Uh, Phenom Games, is that? Yep. It still exists today in a different form than it started. So what is that? And let's get nerdy about video games. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now it exists as a wholesaling
1: within Europe company. Mm. So I basically move video games around Europe to take advantage of the fact that they, there's no price parity across your countries, and there's mm-hmm. no trade barriers. So yeah. I can buy larger amounts, split them into smaller packages, and then move them to countries and sell them to smaller retailers and retailers who can't buy such large amounts because, as we well know, video game pricing is very, very volatile. Yes, I do not want to be sat on a large amount of games that I've just had a bad review and find that they mm-hmm. lost twenty dollars per unit in
0: value. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, is that newer games, older games, like everything that comes out? Um, so it's
1: I'm very much choosy of what I purchase because obviously I have to be aware and very astute to what I buy and what will sell, and also mm-hmm. thinking in terms of the reviews, the previews but also the cultural elements of some games sell better in certain places. And mm-hmm. I have people, associates who work for me and help me with that kind of local consideration. So they organise the logistics, the transport, and they deal with the local customs and terrorists And so that, that means that nowadays I just work on these original sourcing and the selling. And that's kind of utilising mm-hmm. the network of contacts I've built because I've been doing it for twelve years.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. So, what is? Uh, this is actually a question from a different podcast that I listened to. What was your first video game experience? Oh wow! So my first video game experience
1: was when my uncle bought me a Commodore sixty four.
0: Wow. Yeah. So
1: so <laughs> so this is nineteen ninety two. And mm-hmm. he buys me a Commodore 64. And mum and dad had no idea what a computer really was. But my uncle has mm-hmm. always been massively into computers. He was, like, attempting to program spectrums and all sorts in the 80s. And really, it's always been his passion and his projects. Um, and he bought me a Commodore 64, which it run on tapes, later cartridges, but the tapes would take about 20 minutes to load a game. So you, <laughs> you 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 got patience. You learn how to be patient mm-hmm. for waiting for your experience. And I, oh, yeah. I had a, I had a Simpsons game, which I think was the first ever Simpsons game made, where you've mm-hmm. run along effectively on, on a platform style with Bart and spray paint things. And, <laughs> and I had an international so- soccer game, which literally now looks like a few polygons running across the screen. But yeah. at the time, it was amazing.
0: Yeah, And of course, yeah,
1: yeah, and you, you <laughs> waited for so long while the tape loaded. You got all the different coloured lines on the screen, and all the <laughs> all the surrounding noise of it crunching to process. Mm. And then after a very patient wait, you suddenly got wow, a game I can play, and it was yeah. it was revolutionary because obviously that was a time when you got to imagine there was no such thing as a mobile phone. And the world was a very, very different place.
0: Yeah. Um, What, I guess, at what point did you kind of know that video games would be important enough for you to, like, be invested and do a business through buying and selling games? Right. So, I mean,
1: it kind of, from that point at seven, it was then quite a big part of my life. I mean, I went on to get an Amiga and then a SNES. So I had Amiga 1200 mm-hmm. and a SNES. So I had two computers in the house. I was like 10. This was great. So I could use my Amiga myself and then play the SNES with my little brothers. And in the summer, my friend got a Mega Drive. So we, we literally spent the whole of the summer school holidays, either at my house playing Super Frog on my Amiga or mm-hmm. at his house playing, on his, playing Sonic on his Mega Drive. And it literally just became, yeah. it became a social thing. And in so many ways, mm-hmm. that's kind of, that's changed now in the days of headsets and the internet. But back mm-hmm. then, it was, your friends all came around and you all played either two player games with each other or you watched somebody else play and all spoke about yeah. it. And that really binded friendship groups together. It gave people a shared hobby and also an experience of all being together, trying to defeat the enemy, trying to finish the level, yeah. trying to beat each other. That competitive edge mm-hmm. and that really—I think that really kind of as like I transitioned into, you know, teenagehood, the fact that it was there and it was a part of my life and it was a way for me to channel my competitive edge, a way for me to socialize and connect with other people. It's that, mm-hmm. It started to uh, started to embed partially in my life and. I was quite, I've always been quite skilled at computer games. So it does start to take mm. a little part of your identity. And naturally, I'm not neurotypical in the way I'm wired, in the way I think. Mm. So computer gaming is, is a great way to think outside the box and create mm. and build worlds that are not typical that you can then play in. And I'm very much someone who loves statistics and building things so that element of games also really appealed to my identity and how I really process information.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, thinking of that, does that mean that you lean towards strategy games or is, like, where where, where do you kind of spend most of your time in? Yeah, so if you can imagine, uh, when,
1: you're young, when you're, I was younger, it was more a case of... Well, when 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 platform games are easily accessible and sure. naturally started on the on the Marials and the Sonics, which in their own way were pretty mm-hmm. challenging. Sure. When you were a kid. And that kind of strangely, you built quite a lot of res- resilience by
0: continually dying on a level, mm-hmm. but not giving oh, up yeah. until you did it. <laughs> um Right. But also games were expensive. Oh. And so it's like my parents spent a lot of money on this game. I better freaking Yeah beat this game yeah th- 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 <laughs>
1: there's, there's a definite investment in there but as I started to be able to choose my own games I started to move in both directions so I had by the time I was 12 13 I had a playstation and a pc so on my playstation I tended to focus more around games that I would play with my brothers so we were playing sporting games we were playing we were playing platform and adventure type games and then I would go off on the PC and play SimCity, Theme Park.
0: Yeah.
1: More simulation, mm-hmm. more strategy, more role-playing to kind of fulfill mm-hmm. my desire for making worlds and designing characters mm-hmm. and then building them statistically to be stronger for experience.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, my Steam library, uh, the you know how it shows you like your hours yep. spent in a game? <laughs> Civilization has far and above (laughs) way more hours of playtime on me than anything else I play. (laughs) Um, But I mean, what? um, do you still play a lot of games now or Um, has that kind of been pulled apart having kids and running two businesses now?
1: Yeah, so I mean, if you can imagine, I actually got to a point where it took off my life a bit. It actually became a bit of a problem. So mm-hmm. when I was at university, I started playing Command & Conquer Renegade online <laughs> with a lot of American friends. And that then kind of led to me staying up because lots of them were plus six, some of them, mm-hmm. uh, not minus six to me,
0: minus six, and some, yeah, yeah. And
1: some of them on the Pacific course were minus eight. So I, yeah. I was like staying up till very late in the evening. I was like 2 a.m. UK time yeah. for their evening when they'd finished college. And right. so I was playing with them at ridiculous hours <laughs> in the morning and then just playing in the day. And that really wasn't uh, productive for me, <laughs> <laughs> not being able to get up in the morning to go to university. Uh, that mm. kind of hits uh, hit a certain point when I decided and started to move away from uh, strategy and find myself in the world of role playing in a serious way. way. So some of my American friends suggested that I go and try World of Warcraft. And that led to me on a significant path because the way I'm wired, I had managed to <laughs> get to the top of Command and Conquer Renegade sniping ladder. <laughs> wow. Which had taken, oh, I, I don't want to try and recount the amount of hours, but it took a long time to get there. And then it reset. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But I took the same kind of approach into World of Warcraft that I was going to be the top, one of the top players in Europe. And that started Mm. me on the process of spending an awful lot of time investing in preparing, building my character, fairy crafting. And that actually came to the detriment of my studies. So I had to, (laughs) I had to, there, there was a point where I had to actually say, look, can't play as much, just
0: can't do this not a job right it's not a job it's just a game just a game right <laughs> i wonder if uh blizzard could theoretically keep a keep track of how many people they have single-handedly <laughs> dropped out of college <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny now because looking back to just released classic
1: about well like just under a year ago and that's what i was playing at the time and given uh i played not long after releasing europe so it was one of the first when the game was very new, very simple, mm-hmm. uh, and the, it was incredibly novel playing an online game with hundreds of other people at that kind of time when online gaming was still relatively new. Mm-hmm. And again, I ended up make you end up socializing significantly with these people. I actually, made friends that I then went on a tour around Europe, traveling and meeting them all. Yeah, and that was great. Except what actually happened is as I went around Europe and realized that some of the players who are older than me not really moved anywhere with the lives. They were still mm. they were still living like students, even the ones in the <laughs> even some of the ones in the firsts And the ones mm-hmm. who didn't play so much had proper lives and yeah. that really made me think if i'm going to uh, if i'm going to build something maybe it's time to stop building so much in games and actually build a bit more in my own life and that's right. kind of where the synchronization of right the games business if i invest mm-hmm. as much time into the games business as i've been doing into the games and i'm sure i can build a successful business like i've been very much successful in the games and it's that kind of realization that I had to make that decision that I couldn't play a lot because your business takes a lot of time and the Mm -hmm. effort that you put in correlatory to run that business then meant that I almost had this attitude that I'm not going to play my stock. I didn't actually play very much. And I've been on, since that point, and that was 12 years ago, 2008, I've played some and then dropped off, played some and dropped off, depending on Mm -hmm. how the flow of my life has gone
0: yeah (laughs) um so i mean do you still hold that rule you're not playing your stock (laughs) um well no because there
1: became became points where i just got back into gaming and Mm -hmm. what happens is in some ways by having your own business you have the flexibility to make space if you want it and for the first four years of my business i was working alongside it so i was working a Mm full-time job alongside the business for a lot longer than I actually financially needed to, but I was still kind of enjoying going out to work and socialising with people and having that different element. So Mm. I bought my first house in 2010 with the profits from the business. It gave me the chance to buy my first house after 18 months because it had gone straight to six figures very quickly and I was making a good amount of money. And then I had a period where I just went back to World of Warcraft for six months Started to fall back <laughs> into that those lazy habits of oh I could just log on <laughs> or I could do some work, so I, sure. I cut that off again. And then I met my wife, so I was like, right, I'm just going to be sensible now. Had had my son, started playing a bit of Diablo Free, and then it was like, <laughs> did that, played that for a few months, and I was like, yeah, I'm back off. So it's all, it's been it's been very much like that ever since. I tend to have six months really intensely focused on the game, and then realize actually I need to go back to life for a bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm sure it's good to kind of have that balance of like you get really focused on business, but then it's like, all right, I need to have some fun yep. for a change at least for a little bit, and then you know kind of get back into video games. Um, how how old are your kids now? Because are are they the age that you can start playing games with them? Um, they're kind of there. So the the seven and five.
1: Mm. So the kind of start at that age, but in some ways. Uh, we, we don't actually have a console that we use in the house. Mm. And that's kind of simply because they really enjoy reading, they enjoy outdoors. Mm. And I just know that I limited myself partially when I was younger from getting out there mm. and doing stuff because I could just play games all day. So mm. I think the time, when the time comes where they ask, and we've, they've been to friends' houses and played Nintendo Switches and that kind of thing. And they've mm-hmm. enjoyed it in the moment, they've not come home and asked for one for Christmas or the birthdays yet. Sure. And I think when that time comes, we can get them mm-hmm. on. My wife was really thinking that we should get them a switch for Christmas, but then mm-hmm. they've not really asked. And when when the time comes and they ask, that'll be the good time to get them introduced to games and mm-hmm. let them get the benefits of socializing and the fine motor skills from using the controllers and yeah. yeah. But without going overboard and stopping
0: going outside (laughs) (laughs) right uh or or opening the floodgates and having you be like oh well you need to play this and you need to play this and you play this oh this is what i played when i was a kid and all that stuff well yeah (laughs) definitely
1: and like retro games are making a comeback um my Mm. son was trying to play tetris the other day and getting incredibly frustrated that (laughs) like a lot of the like apps for little children now you can't lose Mm. We'd taken away yeah, the yeah. the hard game over, so he was getting sure. incredibly frustrated. That wait, what? It's it's, it's like I'm, it's game over. We've got like ten points. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is a good lesson for life.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Don't let the blocks
1: get to the top because <laughs> you mm-hmm. because you will lose.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um Well, it's kind of interesting the 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 change in kind of priority and goal. Uh, And it kind of reflects, in a way, society nowadays versus before where it was like, hey, sometimes you lose and that's game over and that sucks. Sorry, try again, buddy. Uh, Whereas nowadays it's like, no, don't worry. Like everyone's a winner and we're all good. Everyone's trying to have a good time. And that probably has more to do with like the consumer aspect of it. Yeah. But like it is a bit. Like they haven't, or the, the goal has changed from try and succeed while having a good time versus just have a good time. Like having a good time is the goal, which is a a different, it's not necessarily a bad or worse priority, but it is a, uh, I guess I, I want to say misguided approach. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, the way I kind of see it in terms of how I feel is games 25 years ago, they they taught you how to embrace frustration. as mm. you kept dying. You actually became patient because it took forever to load. So by the time they loaded, you were grateful that you had the chance to play. It was really mm. novel because not everyone had one. And going to the arcade mm-hmm. was the most amazing thing ever
0: big right. flashing
1: machines, like, wow. And yeah. there was there was a real power to that. But also, mm-hmm. like, the more complex games, it didn't hold your hand. You had to explore. Yeah. You had to really get outside of your comfort zone a bit, read the communication to find out where you had to go and what you had to do. And you really had to actually be mindfully focused on what you were doing, because if you missed something, mm-hmm. you'd be lost lose the chain yeah so in a lot of ways it was like reading a book Mm -hmm. and that kind of (laughs) process of understanding right so you've got to pay real attention to what this person's saying you have to follow this tutorial so you understand how the system of the game works and then these things happen so like in civilization for example and other similar games Mm -hmm. you you had challenges like you know, you, you you'd have, you'd have the 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 earthquake, the invasion, just
0: mm-hmm. the,
1: and you'd be able to recreate some part from history, which is great because so many people, civilizations taught them about. It. <laughs> Civilization yeah. is is their like history lesson, and mm-hmm. those valuable things it, on the on the older civs they pop up and give you like an information box about that particular tribe, and it's actually a good way. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to learn, and the strategy of creating things you'd understand start to, you'd even think about like the geology of what you were building and actually get quite, yeah. quite deep into it. Whereas I feel games mm. nowadays, it's all about that initial dopamine hit and they just want to kind of keep you on the platform because as long as they keep you on the platform, they keep you making money. So failing is, failing is much softer. Everything's much easier. Things are guided. So you don't have to really pay that much attention and naturally, as it's moved towards mobile games and downloadable content, well, they don't even need to give you a full game anymore. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: the game can be so basic it runs on a on a on a phone. And mm-hmm. really, it's just designed to keep you scrolling, to keep you moving, and not really engaging yourself in that way. So it's actually gaming's gone from being really, really
0: mindful to for some games, being quite mindless. Mm-hmm. Right, but at the same time, there there has been a kind of renaissance as far as uh, I don't know how many indie games you play. I, I play a lot of indie mm-hmm. games, and what I see is that the the indie sphere, since they're not so kind of caught up in this world of like we have this giant publisher over our heads that's telling us we got to make this much and this thing has to be in the game and you got to have the micro microtransactions and all that stuff – Uh, indie developers are able to kind of push the medium forward by saying, like, what is a game? What is depression told in the story of a game? What is this kind of story told in this kind of format? And I think that uh, that's something that people weren't able to do back in the day because it seemed like uh, the only people that made games back in the day were these huge, you know, here's nintendo and capcom and yeah all of these well i think there's different aspects
1: to it there's definitely the fact that indie games now have the flexibility but the there's been positives through the movement as well so nowadays the the indie game scene allows people who are not traditional gamers to build games for non-traditional gamers so it's like it's Mm. moved away from this fact that when i was a kid a gamer was very much decided as a young lad, a young man. And that Mm. was pretty much (laughs) a young man who wasn't particularly sporty, who preferred to channel his entertainment through gaming and music. And it was that kind Mm. of, that kind of avatar that almost (laughs) everything was sold towards. And Things have gradually moved forward. So I saw something quite interesting, which was a flashback to a PlayStation magazine from 20 years ago. And mm. it was a, when a, a woman from Ireland had written in about the Lara Croft character in Tomb Raider and mm-hmm. how she, she would quite like some of the male characters to not be wearing very much either. <laughs> and the reply from the magazine editor was like, as you can imagine, what looked now. If someone put that on Twitter, it would cause a storm because <laughs> it was more like yeah. that's just how it is. And if you want, mm. if you want like half-naked guys on video games, maybe you should come design some yourself, <laughs> type. Mm. <laughs> and but, yeah. but but now indie indie has opened up for so many different people from diverse backgrounds to come and channel gaming in a different direction. In a direction that's authentic to them, to put messages mm-hmm. out there. And in the same way as music, where you're able to create and the platforms are there to get it out to your audience, the people who will resonate with your game, without the control mm-hmm. of the bigger publishers saying, it's got to be this, it's got to be this mm-hmm. way. And like we've seen some particular franchises now. At the point where you know it's like, they're like beyond version ten of the game, and people, right. people, people are ready for something that reflects our time. Like I'm absolutely sure there's games that are being built around the current crisis, and how people feel. Yeah. And again, it's that adaption The great thing about that area is that people are very agile and can bring things out very quickly and dynamically that really resonate with people at the time. And they're not massive publishers trying to gradually move degree by degree to move and navigate to where people are currently looking. And again, the barriers to entry are gradually lower and people are garnering the skills to build things. And there is Mm -hmm. an increasing, uh, very much an increasing want for nostalgia especially yeah. for people for people of my generation. Like I've just turned 35 and I think about the things I was playing when I was 10 and when I was 15 and I'm like, they hold really comforting memories of childhood and mm. I kind of think with the old uh, FF7 remake, that's just making me feel right. like FF7 was the first game that I bought with my own money.
0: Mm.
1: So that was that was a big game for me and I spent months playing it. And it's like, that's one of the games that really sticks in my memory of my journey. And Mm -hmm. like I said before, I'm tempted to buy PS4 (laughs) just for that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, there's going to be new generation this year, supposedly. So, I mean, it's going to be backwards compatible. You might as well just uh, hold off a little bit and be set for the next, like, six seven years with a ps5 (laughs) well
1: yeah who knows and i'm almost in the point where i've got a ps3 and it's become the kids blu-ray player right (laughs) (laughs) i don't really have time to play that much Uh, and the Mm. wife now uses it for uh amazon prime and netflix and all that Mm. kind of stuff it barely gets you games, but i did uh i have i have been playing a few months back i was playing the original ff7 just out of that, uh, feeling for a bit of nostalgia.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, I mean, I, I played the, uh, the demo at least, but like it's, it's definitely come a long way and, and we can definitely see that and feel that now, uh, kind of with that, I know it's a hard question to answer. Uh, also I feel like I'm asking all the questions you can, since this can be a free conversation, you can ask me that's questions. cool. Too. That's cool. Um, but um, what is your favorite game right now? Oh wow, that's a good one. Doesn't necessarily have to be like of all time, yeah. But just like what your favorite game is from this Lee, who I'm talking to. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's actually
1: quite challenging because I play so little now, mm-hmm. and it's been quite a while since I've played anything to a, uh, to a deep level. Mm. I I generally think back, um, and I would play this again, Metal Gear Solid, the original.
0: Mm.
1: Just the, just the power of the story. Yeah. And the action and just the fact that <laughs> that kind of story of genome soldiers and warfare hmm it it just almost slightly predicts what might happen in the future in a very eth- yeah. in a very ethereal way and yeah yeah it's um it just it just it still resonates with to me to this day
0: mm-hmm. i mean kind of everything uh in the whole metal gear series is very kind of ahead of its time uh so i mean the the way that they were talking about like yes genome soldiers and uh these kind of proxy wars and stuff Mm. and like metal gear solid 4 it's like yeah we're kind of living in that now yeah and uh well (laughs) well, i
1: don't think we're far from effective weapons that Mm. that are machine biometrically controlled machine learn how to kill people and then (laughs) Mm. we're not we're not far off weapon weapons that are have artificial intelligence which allows them to go on rampages and Mm. it's that kind of feeling (laughs) as things progressing you look back and that game's 20 years old over 20 years old and yeah it's really funny how in so many ways science fiction and video games and movies shape where technology goes because the people who are designing it have generally consume that information and that starts to make you believe, mm-hmm. like if you kind of look a bit a bit earlier than that, then people who watch Star Trek and Star Wars that kind of space mm-hmm. exploration era, and that is their kind of idea of technology. And that's now shaped them mm-hmm. to then work on those frontiers. But I'm gonna uh pop a question into you, Santiago, and say what what was the sure. what was the first
0: game that you played? Um so I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, I think my first game memory is probably a, not very good for a, uh, I think I might have been, mm, I don't know, second or third grade or something like that, uh, but uh, it was Mortal Kombat 4 or gold, I <laughs> <Yeah>. think. <laughs> Uh, which is a a wonderful first experience for a small child. Um, Hey, tell us. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And I just remember seeing that I might've been even younger than that actually, but I just remember seeing that and being like, Whoa, it's super cool. Like these crazy dudes are just like fighting each other. And um, I mean, it's, kind of interesting for my generation that like the first video games that I kind of experienced was 3d. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of separation of, Hey, everything is happening in all directions and you live in this kind of immersed world, uh, is kind of a, a bigger marker of, where video games were at that time um but my family we started with a ps1 yeah um and then migrated from the ps1 after that to, and we kind of grew up poor so yeah uh, i have two older brothers uh so instead of getting a new console we would sell the old console and get a new one and so yeah. like everything would just transfer up and everything would be on that console yeah and so uh from the ps1 we went up to the gamecube and we had the gamecube for a very short amount of time (laughs) and we switched to an xbox yeah um and so it's kind of funny because i i grew up as an xbox kid and there's so many kind of essential gaming experiences that i didn't have kind of growing up on the like weird side of gaming at least at that point in time where like xbox was this minority kind of making more adult centered like we're the core gamers over here um and so i didn't i didn't play zelda or mario growing up i played halo and um so i mean it's it's pretty different um but i mean stuff like fable and um knights of the old republic yeah uh which are these very like real rugged games but also like well built and good story and stuff like that um so i mean all of my gaming experience kind of starts through xbox because that's where i really kind of got involved with it yeah um
1: those are powerful so, games to, um, to kind of start with because <laughs> they have strong stories. I mean, one thing that I have kind of mused on recently is that when you're looking at polygonal PS1 games mm-hmm. and like Dreamcast games, what you actually remember is that now we look at things in HD and beyond <laughs> HD into 4K. And actually back then, mm-hmm. we all had CRT TVs and mm-hmm. things didn't look as bad because the TVs <laughs> had no definition. <laughs> yeah, it was all fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and so you're out, your brain was kind of able to fill in the blanks. Oh, it looks great. Like, I remember Spyro looking way different than this. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, there's actually a massive effect
1: on the fact that we now look at things in, in you know, way, way above, I mean, I don't even know what... Um, what original CRT TVs were like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They
0: they weren't weren't 1080p, let's just say that. Right, exactly. (laughs) And I'm kind of amazed that we could even read any sort of text (laughs) because it was just everything was so fuzzy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I I think I remember uh, during the transition, I guess, from CRT into uh high definition with like xbox 360s generation um i kind of remember that some games like you tried to play on a crt tv and like you just couldn't read yeah because the games were optimized for hd and so you i mean some text pops up in the corner and it's like i especially remember skyrim was really bad about this yeah because uh, they had tiny texts in the corner being like, hey, you just contracted a disease. This is important. You should probably know this. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, I, I can't read that up there. Um, and so, I mean, that transition was really telling because then once you upgrade to a new TV, it's like, oh, I can see now. And that's what it looks like. <laughs>
1: wow, this immersive world. Look at the Look at the viewing distance I've got now.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um kind of going into I guess more of that uh or like linking to our lives, but like how does the relationship that you have with games kind of go into your experience as a life coach? Oh, so I think the biggest thing to take
1: is that when you're playing an rpg you kind of start off as it's quite often as the the you're almost like uh you've got nothing yeah so many of them so many of them Mm -hmm. start with you know you're wearing you're wearing a loincloth and you can't remember what happened to you so you almost start Mm -hmm. as a blank canvas with all this potential and you play through the game gradually increasing your stats and finding equipment to take on your journey to put in your backpack to carry with you, and eventually you go on. You defeat defeat the defeat the worst person in the world, or mm-hmm. you, you get to that point where suddenly you're strong. And mm-hmm. what you kind of realize is, in that initial weak character who couldn't like kill a rat, you had all the potential to be that hero at the end. And mm-hmm. that's kind of like the journey of life. You come up. You when yeah. you start as a baby can't look after yourself you're literally weak with your wooden sword and (laughs) and a loincloth for armor and it's like right and it's like you gradually go through life the the idea that your character gets experience and levels up
0: that's life Mm
1: -hmm. we don't we don't really see it we don't see the bar up here going (laughs) (laughs) But, but that is life as we gradually get gain new skills like our new skill lines come And what it really is Mm -hmm. is very representative of how you optimize yourself and gain experience for your life to be able to take on bigger and bigger challenges, to go and Mm -hmm. visit new areas and to travel and experience to meet new people along the way, possibly a team to bring with you. Characters, Mm -hmm. characters that that you meet that seem to resonate with your character and other characters that you meet that seem to be very much on the other side. And you're going to meet people in your life who they simply don't like you for whatever reason. They might not even like how you look, but just don't like you. Mm And that is life. Mm -hmm. So in so many ways, I kind of thought, well, my system is almost like a bit of a game. So my life coaching design is called the decide system. So the first part is about finding your direction. So it's kind of like you're at the Mm -hmm. start of the game, but you actually need to know where you're going in your life. You Mm -hmm. need to have that target so that you know where you're kind of aiming towards. It's Mm -hmm. really getting deep into your goals, why you've got the goals that you have, and digging that bit deeper to find what is the actual underlying reason you want the things that you want in life. And the Mm -hmm. second one is to build your energy by optimizing your sleep, your nutrition, and your movement. And that, in so many ways, is what you do in the game as you increase your statistics, whether it be strength and dexterity or vitality Mm. and spirit, or magic and as you're gradually building your skills and your character statistics and you're starting to find new things, well, that's kind of like that process of actually optimising your life. You can get stronger by making sure that you get the right amount of sleep, that you eat the right foods for you, that you actually move and exercise Mm -hmm. yourself enough. And in so many ways, it's then kind of looking at what holds you back along the story. So like if if it was uh if it was a game where you just run through and you never faced any bigger challenges any bosses any you know bad parts of the story where you lost your friends it'd be a really boring game so it's like actually saying right you're gonna face lots of challenges but how does that character build themselves back up once they've had something bad happen to them you can do that yeah you can face those challenges they're gonna come in your path. And then it's really making that plan to help you towards that final boss, which is going to be your destination and yeah. making sure you kind of, you prepared. So you're prepared for every step of the journey and you're actually spending time to reflect and thinking, you know, am I ready? Am I doing what I need to do every day? And in so many ways, it is a bit like a hero's journey because that's the life that we're all going to mm-hmm. live. And the fact that video games tend to embody that in an interesting way, very much links into what I do
0: yeah yeah uh in a way like art imitates life imitates art mm. uh <laughs> cyclical and then uh yeah yeah uh and i i'm reminded of this meme that was uh like every jrpg is like <laughs> uh first mission find the kitty final mission kill god <laughs> <Yeah>. and it's <laughs> um and I mean, yeah, we, we start out doing very small, simple things. And then at some point, we're kind of doing these huge things that we never really imagined that we could do. Mm, um, it just can't. But we're all capable. Mm,
1: and it reminds us that our potential is unknowable. And if we're going to move mm. towards that potential, we need to have quite big, ambitious goals. But that character doesn't, you know, complete his first quest and then run up to the final boss and slay him in one hit. Sure. There's an awful lot of preparation, a lot of journey, a lot of learning, a lot of challenges along that way. And so many of us set a New Year's resolution. You know, I'm going to do this massive big goal, I'm going to do it. It's like taking mm-hmm. your level one character to go and defeat the final boss. Are you, is mm-hmm. it ever going to work? No, because you're not smashed right. it into a million pieces and done, done the process mm-hmm. all the way through the way. And it's like, that's a great metaphor for helping people think, right, if you're going to set a massive audacious goal, Number one, you're going to go on a really big journey to get there. And number two, you have to do it little bit by little bit.
0: Right. Yeah. Or like some games begin, they have you kind of start as this like super cool badass. And yeah. then uh, something happens and you just get Shush. smashed all the way back down to the bottom. <laughs> and it's like, all right, now build yourself back up. Um, and that's and that's a great metaphor too, because sometimes... Uh, even in, with with your story too it's like you're going all right and then like oh no i have this thing and i can't walk anymore <laughs> yeah and it's that's your way of like hey your character you're starting out as like this full-fledged character and then you get thrown back down you have to build yourself back up mm.
1: <laughs> and then there's always the ability for you to for you to do things in games that you could never do in life like be a mafia boss mm. <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> and we shouldn't quite encourage no, that one either definitely not <laughs> and like uh, Santiago says when the game's like eight 18 rated and you're playing it when you're uh, six <laughs> 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 but yeah the that casual association between games and people being violent the more research they mm-hmm. do the more they realize just, you know, not really grounded
0: right well in what it really shows is that uh it's probably better to have that violent output in a simulated way rather than having it in a real way. And I mean, I live in the U S and, uh, school shootings are a daily thing. Yes. Uh, well, in a weird way, gladly, not anymore since there's no school. But, um, I think that the, the people that do kind of, fall down this hole and feel like there's no one supporting them. They feel like they're super alone and they get into these online communities that kind of refine all of their biggest prejudices and Mm. hatred. Um, They don't have any sort of output, whether it be a video game or whether it just be a community around them to help them see different perspectives and let them know that they have a support. Um, And so without any sort of outlet for this rage, this whatever it might be, yeah, people do end up uh, doing horrible things. Yeah. Wait. Uh, whereas instead, you could just, yeah, pull up Mortal Kombat, beat the crap out of someone, and be like, you know what, I didn't, I didn't kill a real person. I feel good about this. Let me simmer down a little bit yeah
1: definitely (laughs) and and i just think that obviously in the uk it's it's a very different situation with us having such strict gun laws Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's a very very complex issue and no one who finds themselves in in that situation has taken it lightly it's usually a long drawn out process and a lot of different a lot of different considerations that have psychologically put them in that position where life becomes of such little value. Um, and it does slightly irk me when people say video games, that's why people are violent. It's, right. it's, it's not true. It's, it, it might play a small part in certain people's perspective of slightly you know, derailing the truth of violence from life, but that doesn't make people violent
0: mm-hmm yeah and I mean have not to get into like the personal stuff but like have you dealt with some of these people that have kind of considered going down that path and how do you kind of reroute them
1: yeah I mean from a life coaching perspective there are there are boundaries where from a therapist I can deal with and there, there are there are places and boundaries where I need to then refer on to different medical practitioners. So, sure. from a life coaching perspective, we're very much future-focused, goal-centric, and it's the client that drives it. So, if they've got significant mm-hmm. past trauma that they're bringing and expressing at the session, that is beyond my training as being tra- trauma-informed, and they need counselling or s- specific therapies, then they would go. Mm-hmm. I would I would signpost them to that route. Because in some ways, it's it's important that we look at the future and where they're going to go. But if they've got beliefs and things that are holding them back from being able to do that in such a significant way that there's unresolved issues from the past, then it's, it's natural that we shouldn't practice outside our boundaries. Right. Um, but then I kind of, like on a daily basis, you do deal with clients who... Have certain considerations. A big thing as a coach is you have to remain impartial. So what you kind of almost practice is the face of uh, the face of non-judgment. So sometimes a client might say something that you really don't agree with, mm. and that might be from a political point of view, or a religious point of view, or a cultural point of view. And you, it's not your place to judge their views their perception mm-hmm. and perspective is theirs. It's your job to assist them to get the best out of themselves and, and move towards their future goal. So, mm-hmm. again, we have to we have to remain detached and impartial in the work that we do. Right. And that non-judgmental, we believe everyone has the potential to reach a very high level. Um, and that kind of means that we don't tend to go there we have to almost ask questions which make them rethink their own thinking. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it actually involves them expressing something and then you questioning them to actually get them to dig a bit deeper about why they feel that way. Mm-hmm. And then start to almost expand the mind to see how that might affect them getting towards the goals that they set, how it might affect their interactions with other people, the biases that they might then hold and how those can be cause issues with how they communicate and how words actually matter and the potential for influence through body language or tonality and just help them to kind of navigate those issues. Because sometimes that's, that is one of the things that could possibly be holding them back from where they want to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to transition away from that. So I'm just going to ask a different question. Let's (laughs) let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, I noticed that on your um, website, you had said that uh, some of your favorite bands were Muse and Coldplay. And I was like, man, how very British of him. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, I mean, I guess talking about music, um, why, uh, I guess, why the, the extremely British, I mean, not like Muse and Coldplay are extremely British, but like why the leading into that other than just you know you like what they do <laughs> well yeah
1: i mean the thing is i i've never been massively musical my my family weren't and i tried to learn to play the keyboard and mm. it didn't really work for me <laughs> it's hard it's it's it's, <laughs> it's challenging and i've got uh, i've not got the best motor skills for reading music and playing at the same time it's just, it's just, <laughs> it's just not there. I find it much easier to play on a on a on a joystick. <laughs> um, right. But, well, not everyone has to read music either. So no, very, very <laughs> true. Um, so in some ways, for me, it's it's two bands which I just resonated with the the rhythms of the music, the kind of messages they supposed outside the music. But more than anything, I've got a very, very eclectic music taste. Anyway, and mm. I think the two particular bands who seem to hit most of what they release, and it it kind of it resonates with me. But mm. you will find me like dancing to ridiculous '90s pop music mm-hmm. and then sure. jumping around to early early millennium hip hop. And then winding, yeah. winding it all the way back to you know 1980s rap. Mm-hmm. and and then you'll get me listening to you know alternative rock, and then I'll just be jumping around to some kind of electro club music. I mean I've got such a such a varied taste, mm. but it's it's more of a case for me of what I like, and I think that's that's the one thing that's always stood out. I don't follow trends. I don't follow you know I, I like those people. just like the music that i like (laughs) yeah yeah and i I honestly think that's like that's an authentic way to approach it and i'll happily say oh i like that song but i don't like that song i like that band but i don't like that band just it's 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 interesting because really i just like a good beat and something that something that has a nice rhythm and just Mm -hmm. just speaks to me
0: yeah (laughs) uh i mean i myself am a bit of a uh I don't know what's the word anglophile, I really like British stuff, yeah. uh so uh I mean Radiohead's my favorite band, yeah, uh, I've been listening to a lot of everything, everything lately, mm-hmm. um so I mean, for whatever reason, a lot of that stuff resonates with me a lot more than uh some American stuff. I don't know why like what the difference in the culture is that hits me so much better whenever British people do it instead of uh, American people. But, like, man, I mean, just, you guys know how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting when you think of the philosophy of music
1: and the psychology behind it, it just, everyone's brain is wired for that sensory, sensory frequency differently. It's really interesting when you look into it and realise that some people can be really, really productive with some instrumental music in the background. And for other Mm -hmm. people, it tanks their productivity. They actually work better in silence. Mm -hmm. And that is the power of music. For some people, a certain tempo can make them speed up in a task. And -hmm. you can actually control them by the tempo of the music, speed them up and Mm -hmm. slow them down
0: yeah yeah. and it, it, it's really it's
1: really really interesting when you look into look into like a kind of like wavelength psychology and the technology technology and psychology of frequency it's um mm-hmm. it's 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 one of those things you can go down and start reading studies and think wow this is cool i could control people mm-hmm. by
0: playing music <laughs> <laughs> um does that play uh a, a role as uh, uh especially with like environmental psychology i think that uh, having a sonic environment hmm. can really shape people's behavior.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, a bit of what we do is around the acoustics of workplaces. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that your sound studio was the only place where they ever did any any acoustics and <laughs> and your your workplace building, well, they didn't really care. <laughs> but now they're mm-hmm. actually starting to think about what the overlying environmental stresses are of continual noise mm-hmm. because, I mean, I was saying this recently to a company in that if someone shines a flashlight in your eyes, that's an environmental stressor in terms of light, but you close your eyes mm-hmm. and you look away. And it's kind of the same. If, you, if you're if getting too hot or working, you're sweating, you go and turn the thermostat down, you'll open the window. Now, continual noise at a certain decibel level is an environmental stress. But what we tend to do is we tend to zone out so we don't Mm. hear it, but we're still stressed by it and we can't shut our ears. Mm. It just plays in that background, that kind of frequency, whether it be the buzzing of computer servers or some air conditioning unit, and it just makes that underlying noise that people switch out of, but it gradually stresses them out. And over the Mm. months, it builds up and builds up to the point where it can cause mental health sickness and physical health issues. And it's just, it's not often thought about until someone from outside that kind of arena comes in and says, look, got like 23 decibels of noise if you sat there. Every single day, eight hours a day, that's going to stress people out. For some people, it's going to make them feel like jumping off the top of the building after the end of work. Yeah. You've got to be mindful that people have different environmental needs and some people don't mind that background noise. For some people, the mm-hmm. white noise of, of a fan or an air-conditioning unit, it's negligible. For some people, it drives them absolutely crazy.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. Um, well, and then there's the other side, which is if it is at a large enough volume that uh, even kind of moderately loud things uh for a long period of time will cause hearing damage and so mm. some of these cases it it is to where you're actually like hurting people yeah. by keeping in this sort of environment for such a extended period of time yeah
1: and when you kind of look and you explain this to them and they look at you and say oh all these all these all these dampening materials and partitions it cost quite a lot of money and it's like Think about mm-hmm. how much money you're going to get sued for if David over there goes deaf. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think you'll go and spend some money on getting some dampening materials. <laughs> I
0: think right. I
1: think you'll just build a partition to just make it work. <laughs> or just mm-hmm. rejig
0: your office. Mm-hmm. That and then the, uh, the savings or whatever more money that you make from just the increased productivity exactly. from all of your employees. People can't be creative mm-hmm. when they've got a constant buzzing in their head. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and i mean you see all these office buildings that are like concrete walls and <laughs> open ceilings that are all just solid rock <laughs> and it's like you can't hear anything in there uh you can't have a workplace meeting because all all the reflections are going all over the place and you can't hear anything so i mean really the the benefits are apparent yeah
1: right away and, <laughs> and i just think that it's interesting how we're only just kind of moving over that precipice where companies are considering the acoustics of the offices in their overall design. It's not really been of much of a priority. And for people who specifically do building acoustics, they charge quite handsomely to come and uh, test your building. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, do you have some of that applied in in your own building? Like, do you apply some of these same concepts in your environment too?
1: Uh, I try to where possible. And again, it's kind of a case of, for me, I'm in kind of like a, quite a small enclosed office. And there are, sure. there are some challenges of being based on a main road and me being based in that. So it's kind of like seeing what you can do with your own environment. Cause naturally I spend a significant amount of time in my office. I, converted my garage at home into an office and mm. I boarded that out so I, it had good soundproofing and yeah. that, that was kind of important mm. for me from working from home especially, yeah. especially in times when I'm in the garage and the kids are playing in the garden mm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's also a good space for gaming <laughs> nothing nothing said about that <laughs> 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 So tell your wife about this podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, Lee, thank you for doing this with me. This is a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure,
1: Santiago. It's always good to uh, go deep on some interesting topics that quite often you don't really get the chance to speak about.
0: Yeah. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to chat about? No, we're like slightly over an hour, but I mean, if there's anything else that, if you have any questions for me, I guess. Uh, I think it's all good. I can listen to other people question you on these conversations. All right. Yeah. Uh, That's actually episode 200 of this podcast is uh, one of my friends interviewed me. And so all the hard questions that I hit you with, uh, I was hit with. So
1: yes, I'll make sure I listen to that. (laughs) And everyone else definitely uh, give it a listen.
0: Yeah. Uh, So where can we find you and your stuff? Yep. So I'm at leechambers.org at essentialize
1: on twitter and essentialize coach on instagram
0: sweet yeah nice and simple and uh check out all the stuff and uh have you been on i mean you've been on other people's podcasts and you've written on uh written articles and stuff like that so yeah
1: you'll find me out there somewhere
0: all right yeah uh well thank you so much i'm santiago ramones i'm lee chambers And you can find everything that I do on my website, Santiago I make music. You can find all of my composer stuff and my master's recital and the stuff that I do with power cycle, a experimental electronic trio where, uh, we have an album out called too many damn cables. That is completely improvised. Uh, you can find this podcast on any major platform and leave comments and reviews and tell your friends uh, about all of these wonderful convers- conversations that you're hearing, like the one that I just had with Lee. and I always on my podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.